Shall I start? Great, so, so lovely to be here again, and thank you all for inviting me. And I was quite surprised in some ways to be inviting, because I invited, because I've never done anything on inequality. You know, I've never published anything on it. So I was quite impressed that there was the imagination to invite me in the first place, but I was also very impressed that I think I could understand everything that was said yesterday, which is quite... <laughs> yeah, I might have entirely missed everything and got that wrong, but... Um, so, if I don't do inequality, what do I do? And I do something which I think is quite different. I spend a lot of time looking at plants and beetles and capturing field mice and things like that. I'm an ecologist. And so really what I'm wanting to look at isn't so much equality itself, but how equality can, or inequality can impact the wider environment. Um, and to kind of step back in a way from what I'm wanting to talk about specifically in relation to India, the ways that inequality impacts the environment is really through three metrics, and we discussed them a bit yesterday already. So there's the power metric, so the obvious things that different groups have different power, and that can impact the environment. We see it, you know, the obvious way is that people, rich people can take, get more advantage from, say, heavy industry, but also can get the advantage of being able to extract themselves from it. So we look at where heavy industry now is located in the world compared to the people who get the main benefits from it. Um, so there's the power issue. There's also the issue of kind of intensity of consumption, and this is a fairly debated area, but um, so Jennifer kind of mentioned it a little bit yesterday, but the idea of how people in lower in the hierarchy might try and emulate people higher in the hierarchy, especially when it comes to issues of consumption. And consumption and the environment are often, not always, but often very closely correlated by an environmental impact. And the third area is this issue of trust. So, so when you're living in an unequal society, do you trust the people that you're with? And the way this works within the environmental field is things like um, things like recycling. You know, why should I recycle if I don't trust anyone else going to recycle? Why should I do my bit, so to speak, if I don't trust others? Um, but stepping back a moment to environment, there's two points I want to make about the environment. And the first is that the idea of the environment, the kind of a good environment or bad environment, is highly subjective. So there's a lot of people, both within my kind of area, but also other areas, who Think of the environment as being, a, you know, you can have a good environment or a bad environment. And really, that's not the case. And when most people think about the environment, they're largely putting it in the framing of what they conceive to be natural. And the word conceive is very important as well, because if we look at a, you know, I do a lot of work in agriculture, and if you go to an organic field of wheat in this country, they're incredibly beautiful and full of biodiversity, and you've got poppies and cornflowers and a myriad of insects. But that's a fundamentally unnatural environment, but yet we perceive it to be a good environment. So there's a lot of issues about what a good environment is that we have to be honest about, which often people within my discipline and other ones aren't. And the other broad point to make about inequality in the environment is that it's not always got a clear relationship. So, so accepting the subjectivity of environment, inequality can in some places benefit the environment and some places have problems. And I think this is quite an interesting issue that we shouldn't, you know, there's, there's always trade-offs. And we began also to talk about this yesterday as well. There can be trade-offs between different areas. And I've spent my life oscillating between government and academia. And it's, I find it amazing how often people talk about win-wins and how rarely people talk about the lose that inevitably follows. There's, there's nearly always a lose point. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't move forward on your, on your winners, but you should accept the lose points so that you can at least begin to compensate that. So I now spend my time working in issues to do with India. And when I first went to India, it was a big project with Barbara Harris-White, and we were, looking at, we were looking at rice. 
and I was the kind of person in the centre of the project trying to model it all. So we had anthropologists, we had trade unionists, we had economists, we had natural scientists, we had social scientists. And I was taking all the data and modelling it all. And I decided to ignore this issue called caste. Because caste, it was a messy thing, and it, it was quite hard to put into my spreadsheet. And, and it, I, I, I ignored it successfully, um, in that I didn't include it in my spreadsheet. And it became very apparent how ignorant I'd been in doing it. And actually we had... A year and a half back now, we had a workshop looking at caste and the environment. And some of the things I want to talk about have really come from that. Um, but, again, the point that I ignored caste is also an important issue in terms of thinking about people like me who work on the policy science interface, doing a lot of work with policy. We ignore issues like caste and inequality and these wider social factors because they're messy and because they don't fit into the kind of frameworks that we use. And without trying to be arrogant, I think that I talk relatively clearly to policymakers. I give them numbers, I give them clear policy directions, even though those are wrong because I ignore these factors. But yet when I bring in social scientists or anthropologists, they give much more discursive stories, which you can see the policymakers kind of reacting against sometimes. And obviously that depends who you're talking to. And so there's a big wider policy issue on this. So in terms of caste and the environment, there wasn't any literature on this at all. There was literature looking at where lower castes live in relation to poor environments but there wasn't any literature at all on how caste impacts the environment, um, or that I could find. And there's really kind of three slash four ways where it could do it. There's imposition of behavioural restrictions, and this is especially associated with Dallas. And it's very interesting when you look at some of these. So, so these can, again, be good or bad. And there's a lot of behavioural restrictions still within the countryside areas of India still. And these can relate to where... You can go. So they're kind of they're linked to issues of your specific geography, your specific occupation, your specific actions, and you can be locked in or locked out of specific issues and regions and areas. So you can only graze on certain areas, or you can't graze. You can't sell your milk to the dairy co-op, or you aren't physically allowed access to certain areas. And this can all have different impacts on the environment. So I'm being very crude here, just talking about all have different ones, because actually there's a lot of complexity to go through here. And this is one of the reasons why it tends to get ignored, um, and again, one of the reasons it shouldn't be ignored. The second area, and I'm kind of whizzing through these, is in many ways more interesting, and it's the, what I'm calling voluntary association or voluntary disassociation with specific caste-associated activities. And an example of this is if we look at reservoir management or tank management in India, this was often, especially in South India, a lower caste occupation. And many, so now you get areas where people are deliberately avoiding doing caste-associated activities. For those that don't work in India, caste is a way of stratifying society where it's hereditary and it's associated with the occupation. And so people are now deliberately avoiding doing caste-associated activities if they're demeaning low-status jobs. And this is having impacts in terms of how your reservoirs are managed. And so we're seeing a really interesting factor where these traditional systems of water management, which in many ways were sustainable, are now not being managed because the people who traditionally their job was to management, manage them are refusing to do it. And what I find fascinating is that within the animal welfare world, you can tell if an animal, the way to understand if an animal is more or less happy is you make them go through a period of suffering. Chickens don't like walking through water. If they're willing to walk through water to a different cage, you can say they prefer to go to that cage. So the idea of using measures of suffering as understanding of people's feelings is an interesting one. And if you look at, there's a lot of social anthropology, especially by people like Judith Mayer and Hugo Gorringe, looking at caste in India, and people deliberately turn down jobs when there's no other occupation 
going through periods of hardship with lack of food to avoid caste-associated jobs. So there's a really interesting issue of they're really strongly driven by social status to, to avoid some of these jobs. The other area of caste and um, kind of voluntary association or dissociation is on the other extreme. So India is famous for its vegetarianism, and this is associated with the higher caste within the Hindu hierarchy. And, and food and environment is incredibly closely linked. There's probably no closer interaction between humans and the environment than our food. And there's a group, there's a process called Sanskritization where some caste groups or some caste jatis try and pull themselves up the caste hierarchy by taking on attributes of higher caste. And so you see people becoming vegetarian. And there's actually quite interesting case studies where people have become nutritionally much worse off as they've climbed higher up the social hierarchy. But by becoming vegetarian, you're massively impacting your you're massively changing your impact on the environment. And then the third area is, is really this issue of caste and power, and so how it impacts your ability to have wealth, your impact to have education, your impact to all these other factors. And I'm, a lot of the work I've taken on this is kind of building on Ashwini's work, so I'm not going to discuss this um, anymore. Um, so from my perspective, we can see the myriad of interactions between inequality looked through the lens of caste and the environment. But the interesting part is what do we do about it? And this is where it's much harder for, for us to kind of really make any progress. And I'm becoming, you know, we discussed at the beginning what the purpose of this meeting was, and it wasn't to come up with clear outputs. But from my perspective, it's a very interesting thing about, you know, what should you do when you can recognise this complexity, but how do you use it? And at the minimum level, I would simply say it's important to include it, because actually if I'm trying to understand the drivers of behaviour, then ignoring caste, like I did before, just, just meant that I was really getting a very poor understanding. So if I want to change a behaviour... By ignoring caste, I'm not ignoring everything, but I'm ignoring a big chunk, so I'm not going to get the policy outcomes I want. Um, but also, it's an important fact in terms of being honest about the, being honest about what is happening on the ground, and being honest about where, if we're pushing for certain environmental goals, which might be good environmental goals, appreciating how that interacts with wider society. So, what I think that social scientists might tend to ignore the natural sciences sometimes. There's also a risk that people like me who are fundamentally interested in my, my beetles and my plants and my bees, can tend to ignore the wider social sphere. And that both has impacts in terms of the quality of my work, but also the trade-offs with social factors. So there's a kind of really brief overview of, of the caste environment, sorry, the inequality environment interaction just through this single lens. So that's my contribution. Thank you, Thank you very much. Um, yes. Uh, so let me begin by thanking um, uh, everyone and thanking Devuti for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I had circulated a paper by Thomas Weisskopf, which outlines uh, you know economic issues, and uh, I'm not actually I was going to read out some points from that, uh, not read out, but sort of elaborate on some points from that. But I'm not going to do that now in light of what got discussed yesterday. Several of those points got discussed yesterday. Uh, so today I'll just one reiterate the point that I made uh, when I was uh, in the discussion in the first session, which is um, amongst economists there is a debate about first of all whether inequality matters in an adverse way, because some economists believe that inequality is good for society, it gives incentives, it uh, provides for aspirations. Uh, so there's you know they they distinguish between good inequalities and bad inequalities. That's not a debate I'm going to touch, but. More importantly, in policy circles now, there's a question about whether we should be looking at the entire distribution of incomes or wages or whatever it is, 
or we should be only only be looking at the bottom part. So should the focus be on absolute deprivation or should it be on relative <coughs> deprivation? Um, that's a big debate. Uh, the World Bank has obviously taken the line that it should be on absolute deprivation, not relative. At the moment, it might change later on. Um, my personal view is that we need to look at the relative, not not absolute, because it has consequences um, of all kinds that we see in India. For example, uh, there's there's a big insurgency in the central eastern parts of India. Again, there's a debate about whether it's due to absolute deprivation or relative, but you can't rule out the fact that it could be due to relative deprivation. So there are uh, very serious consequences for social uh, harmony also, apart from it being bad for future growth, just the instrumental reason that economists care about. So that's, that's one issue about absolute versus relative deprivation. My own work has not really been on overall inequality, but it's been on group disparities. And I work on caste mainly. I've also looked at gender, but my focus of my work is on caste. And um, of course, there are techniques that allow you to decompose overall inequality into between group and within group components. And so that's really useful when you want to link between group inequality to overall inequality. But one of the issues there that's linked to affirmative action is that um, Something like affirmative action that allows members of marginalized groups access to positions that they would not have otherwise had, had it not been for affirmative action. Uh, those who support affirmative action see that as a positive instrument in the sense that it allows for upward social mobility to individuals who would not otherwise have had that access. But one consequence uh, for inequality of affirmative action is that it increases uh, within group inequality, not between group. So it might lower between group inequality, but it might increase within group inequality. And India has a very interesting, peculiar term to designate this, uh, this uh, group that benefits from affirmative action. Uh, I mean, regardless of whether it benefits from affirmative action or not, but the richer, richer group within the beneficiary group, and that's called the creamy layer. So it's a very peculiarly Indian usage called um, the creamy layer. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, criticisms against affirmative action in India is that it benefits the creamy layer. So those who are already advantaged within the beneficiary group are disproportionately able to take advantage of the affirmative action policy. So the point is abolish affirmative action because it's benefiting those who can already access other kinds of positions. right? And this is not uh, an insubstantial criticism. Of course, in order to address this, we have to then answer the question of whether discrimination disappears with a rise in income. So is it true that Dalits who are in the creamy layer, quote unquote, uh, are not discriminated against? Uh, and you know, my work uh, and some other people's work also shows that that's not true at all. So that might be true for this intermediate group called the other backward classes, the OBCs, but it's not true for Dalits. So it's not true that richer Dalits face lower discrimination, for example. Uh, even even market discrimination, just wage discrimination. So it doesn't disappear. So regardless of whether there's a creamy layer or not, uh, one has to, um, you know, uh, I would support affirmative action. But um, but the larger point from this is really uh, the distinction that uh, Ambedkar, who was the architect, who was the chairman of the drafting committee of the Independent India India's Constitution, had made initially, which is the distinction between equality in law versus equality in fact. So 
the constitution of independent india guaranteed all indians equality before the law so in the eyes of the law everyone is equal so caste religion gender none of these things matter as far as law the law is concerned in other words law is supposed to treat everybody equally but ambedkar made the point that this is formal equality and formal equality is being established in a context of substantial uh, uh, of substantive inequality so you have an underlying base of substantive inequality which is the caste system which alfi talked about and superimposed on that is a is a legal structure of formal equality so there's going to be a clash and so how do you how do you convert substantive inequality into uh, substantive equality so that then the formal equality also results in substantive equality and one of the ways in which uh, it can be done i'm not saying that affirmative action or quotas are the only way to do this but one of the instruments to achieve this this uh, this balance is actually by by instituting quotas but that then leads to the question that got discussed yesterday which is that in order to then identify who should benefit you have to name and designate beneficiaries the minute you name and designate beneficiaries by their group identity you violate the principle of formal equality because the constitution should not discriminate on anyone uh, against anyone on the basis of caste and i'm i'm uh, treading heavily on tarunov's uh, terrain so apologies if i misrepresent anything but a lot of the legal uh, uh, i mean uh, the crux of a lot of legal cases uh, which are anti affirmative action is rests on this which is how was so and so given admission despite a lower mark uh, because of his or her caste and aren't you violating the basic constitutional tenet of formal equality right so there there is this tension but but it seems to me and yesterday there was this discussion about can we have you know neutral policies or race blind or color blind caste blind color policies which are proxy policies so basically you have affirmative action which doesn't which is not ostensibly group based but it has proxy measures that mimic group characteristics so i mean you know we can talk about whether that's feasible whether you can get good proxies etc but it seems to me that this tension at least in the medium term is inevitable i i don't see how it can be avoided so you know if you think of the circular race track in a in a in a in a race um, uh, competition the person who's on the innermost who's who's placed on the innermost line is going to have some natural advantage so even if everybody was equal ability the person in the innermost line will always come first right so in order to equalize the outcomes you have to stagger their starting points and in sports we kind of take that as as a as a you know as a natural way to establish a level playing field we we would never call that discrimination or a violation of formal equality but when it applied to affirmative action that's seen as a violation of formal equality which is how can so and so get in because of race or how can so and so get in without because of caste essentially what you're doing is you're really staggering the the entry line you're lowering the entry line for some some individuals because of their accumulated disadvantage so if so the point is that when one thinks of policies to address um, to establish equality in fact or substantive equality one might go through a period when these policies clash with the principle of formal equality but i don't really see a way out of that i mean i don't see how else because you know race blind policies in the united states there's a lot of literature on race blind policies uh and first of all if they were just very accurately race blind like if you could find the perfect proxy for being african american then people would figure that out right so then you might as well then say african american so because 
otherwise you, everyone knows that you're not saying African American, but these characteristics that you want to institute for, uh, for example, college admissions are just nothing but a proxy for being African American, right? So people can figure these things out. And if they're imperfect proxies, then members of the non-target groups are also going to get in. So it's going to lower the, uh, the, lower the uh, concession for the target group, which was the original idea for instituting affirmative action in the first place. So affirmative action undoubtedly is not the only policy for uh, equality, but in, when you think of group-based inequalities, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, it is one of the key uh, issues. Okay, but then there's always, the, the question that it raises is that it, it marks individuals by their groups, it makes group identity more salient, uh, it increases within group inequality, the creamy layer, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think that any, all of us who are concerned about inequality um, have to uh, look at these unintended consequences of e equality-inducing policies. Just another example, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop, which is um, there's been a lot of debate in India about equalize, equalizing inheritance laws. So they are very unequal towards men and women. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, you know, campaign going on by women's organizations. There's research, etc., etc. And there's been, there have been major steps in that direction. But in, in certain North Indian states, uh, it has, uh, well, it's hard to say whether it has led because that's, that's a causal analysis and it needs more empirical. But the, the anecdotal evidence or the journalistic evidence is that it might have been it might be a factor behind the increased killing killings of murders of women so brothers or cousins of even fathers who don't want to give the, their property to the to the women just find it easier to kill them off rather than having to build them you know build the property equally um, again I'm, I'm not saying that there's a, the causal thing is established but it, it couldn't it, I, I don't think you can rule out that factor so the point is that a, a particular policy might be instituted for its favorable impacts on, for its ability to, um, to reduce inequality, but it can have uh, very adverse consequences, which, which is obviously not the intention of the policy. But, uh, and I'll speak more confidently about affirmative action, not about inheritance laws, because that's not my area. But about affirmative action, I feel like it's, it's 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 a part of the deal, you know. So we have to deal with it um, because not having affirmative action for reasons that it might increase within group inequality will create a situation that's worse than having affirmative action um, and having within group inequality. And the final word is that social mobility is always seen upward social mobility is always seen seen as a positive phenomenon. It's something that's desirable. But an increase in within group inequality is seen as a, neg a negative phenomenon. But I don't see how, how they're different. Right? You, the only way you can increase within group inequality is when some people move upwards, uh, social mobility. So uh, I, I feel that the nomenclature of this, what is pretty much the same phenomenon, just lends to it a completely, you know, two opposing ways of looking at the same phenomenon. Uh, so I call it upward social mobility, someone else call, might call it uh, increase in within group inequality. And, uh, anyway, there's, there are other issues about data, etc., but maybe in the discussion I'll, I'll talk about those. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm on the list. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I did. Yes, okay. Good. <laughs> yeah, I'll be very brief. I must confess that I've lost the art of speaking out of notes 
which everyone else is doing, which I used to do when I was younger. But now I have to read bits to be sure that I'm on the job. I want to bring in the notion of difference within the understanding or discussion on inequality. And I found it fascinating, particularly because people like Ashwini and Stephanie Seguino and many of us feminist economists have been trying to break down gender equality to stratification and showing that by looking at gender equality as a flat proposition, we are losing out on stratification. So under that stratification framework, I found it important to look at difference. And I found a little piece on difference which sort of uh, is, helps me to be clear on what it is. Difference is one of the constants of all existence, much less human communities. Even things that are made identical become different by the fact of their separateness. Much has been made of the differences amongst people along racial, caste and ethnic lines, which are simply the consequence of origins. So in themselves, these differences should be of no importance, but become so when they are coupled with circumstances of inequality. So I want to differentiate between inequality and difference. And right up front is the fact that people can be different on the same horizontal plane, that is, as we just discussed, men and women of Dalit, but there's a difference in the way the inequality is measured. So inequalities, on the other hand, always imply ranking in value, where these terms become applicable. Inequalities are invariably vertical. Individuals are up and down a ladder. And that's the main thing, that you can have a hierarchy within inequality, which is based on difference. So I thought we should bring it in, and one of the reasons I'm bringing it in is to bring in a, a favorite philosopher of mine, who is often not referred to during debates on inequality. And that is the way Gandhi thought of overcoming inequalities. Now, Gandhi is much contested now because the Dalit movement is rising and they feel that between Gandhi and Ambedkar, Gandhi was sort of not at all in favor of inequality for Shedulkar, but he had his own way of thinking that the, those who at the bottom of the pile could in fact be leveled. And that is by muting difference and transposing identities. And I love this idea of transposing identities, which is impossible to achieve. But he tried it both in his ashrams, where, just to go back to the Dalit issue of carrying night soil while the Brahmins and upper castes don't dirty their hands, he insisted that those in their communities, the ashrams, the Brahmins would carry night soil just to make the feeling that night soil carrying is not a caste-driven issue. Similarly, he had ideas on men and women, that men should cook and clean and sew, and women should be in political participation. Of course, these are highly idealistic ideas, but the idea was that you try to reach to the human spirit to say you can change yourself if you transpose your, the, to the other. And what I, why I brought it up was that a philosopher called Ramchandra Gandhi, who many of you may know, who happened to be the grandson of Gandhi, actually wrote a whole book and he called it I Am Thou, in other words, to put myself in the other person's shoes to avoid conflict. <clears throat> so in terms of interpersonal violence, he calls it transposing identities, which in fact is the broader interpretation of Ahimsa. So I just thought I'd mention this and I was thinking that the great challenge to Hobbes when men are nasty, brutish, and short, is to have Gandhi who thinks that human beings can trans, you know, trans, transcend their normal instincts to be nasty, brutish, and short, and really uh, learn to 
enter the body of the other in order to level up inequality. It's a very far away um, idea, but sometimes I feel ideas are more important actually than programs and implementation because they remain with us forever. Marx remains with us, Gandhi remains with us. And at this stage when we are so much in difficulty on how to handle inequality, you heard Ashwini on all these reservations, its difficulties. Sometimes I feel we have lost the ability to look at what can be done by the human spirit which is more inward. And that's why I thought I'd just bring it up as a completely off-target idea which has been in my mind ever since I thought of inequality and difference. Thank you. Um, well, first, I must apologise for not being here yesterday. I had a, a long-standing engagement in Manchester uh, examining students that, that couldn't be rearranged. Um, so probably I will just be repeating points that you've already um, uh, uh, covered. Um, but since I don't know what we talked about yesterday, I'll just stick to, to, to the notes I uh, prepared um, anyway. Um, I should say that... I'm a sociologist. I um, primarily, I, I have worked well, mainly on, on Britain and on Western developed countries. I've done a little bit of work uh, with uh, more expert colleagues uh, on India. Um, I've worked with Divya Vaid on social mobility in India and, uh, and, and, and caste issues, uh, and with Yugendra uh, Yadav on um, uh, Indian politics. But I, I don't. I'm, I'm not an Indianist. Um, I'm, to some extent, a comparativist. Um, my best-known recent book was called *Unequal Chances*, which is looking at ethnic inequalities, and that's what I'm mainly working on at the, the moment. Um, um, and I'm a member of the government's uh, Equalities Advisory Group, so I, I, I try to uh, advocate um, affirmative action-type policies uh, to government and get a fairly uh, stony silence. Um, so what, what I thought I would um, talk about um, uh, following the sort of the uh, briefing notes was to contrast um, a sociological approach to inequality with an economic approach. And partly because there's some quite interesting debates um, um, between economists and sociologists at the moment about um, how to treat particularly issues of um, social mobility. Um, I should say straight away that um, I'm, I'm going to be slightly caricaturing both sociology, sociological and economic uh, approaches. Economics at least is a relatively unified uh, discipline, um, so I, I hope I won't be caricaturing it too much, but sociology is incredibly diverse and, and there are as many approaches to the study of inequality as there are sociologists. So I'm just going to be talking about some of my pet hobby horses from a sociological point of view, rather than, you know, there is no one single definitive uh, sociological uh, approach. And I, I'm, I also noticed that almost everything I've got to say was in Tom Weiskopf's paper that <laughs> Weenie uh, circulated. Uh, so if you've read that, you probably know, uh, you, you already know what I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm going to make an, um, sort of a few brief contrasts between my sort of stereotypes of an economic approach and a sociological approach. Um, and the first one is um, inequality of what? 
Um, and then I want to look at the units of analysis, um, uh, how is it measured, um, and, and what are the, if you like, the underlying mechanisms which lead inequality to have um, it, it, its effects. And there's probably a preliminary point, which you've probably discussed already, about why I'm interested in inequality. And again, I think there is, is to some extent a difference. I mean, um, um, Tony, my, my good friend and colleague, Tony Atkinson, who is one of the people who put uh, economic inequality on the map, was very much interested uh, in his early work in inequality from a welfare economics point of view. In other words, it's a normative point of view about the fairness or unfairness of the way that some people have greater, or some countries, some groups have, have greater access to the world's resources than others. So that is an, it can, a, a moral concern about inequality and, and the unfair allocation of resources and the way that um, welfare can be increased by moving some resources from the well-endowed to the uh, less well-endowed. So they're normative questions. Sociologists on the whole have been interested in things like class inequality and and, 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 and um, uh, racial inequality, partly for the same normative concerns that the, these may be examples of social injustice, but also because of the explanatory importance uh, for understanding other aspects of society, particularly issues of conflict and change. So I think there's much more, and historically, much more concern in sociology about inequality as an explanatory measure or set of explanatory measures, um, which I think was now in economics, and people often put in you know, a Gini coefficient inequality measure uh, in their models. I've just been reviewing literature on, um, on corruption, and there's a debate about whether inequality is correlated with corruption. Um, so people are using economic measures for explanatory purposes, but I don't think that was really why people like Tony Atkinson uh, originally put it onto the agenda. So it's an issue about why I'm interested in inequality. Um, okay, inequality of what? Well, that's straightforward. Um, the classic economic approach looks at inequality of income and inequality of wealth, which of course are quite different. Um, whereas the, the sociological approach moves away from looking at material, uh, economic inequality, to a wider range of social inequalities. So that, that's the, the first important move. Um, and the, you know, there are many different distinctions. The classic one is Max Weber's distinction between class status and power, or class status and party, political power, um, which I want to talk about a little bit. Um, so we're immediately switching from an assumption that um, income and wealth inequalities are the only um, sort of only concern, which is perfectly understandable, economists did that, but, uh, but the sociology is very much in line with, I, I don't know, you probably all, all know it, the, the recent, um, fairly recent uh, commission uh, run by um, uh, Stiglitz, uh, Sen and Fetusi on the measurement of social progress, but they're very much arguing that if we, could, you know, we should move beyond GDP as a measure of social progress, and they were arguing to look at a wider range of um, non-economic uh, outcomes as, as measures. Um, and I would, and I'm actually doing some work 
on those lines at the moment, I would argue that actually a much more important um, measure than GDP is uh, life expectancy. The data are better, uh, and it's more fundamental. Um, and, um, and it doesn't correlate. Um, so among rich countries over the last 50 years, um, the countries which have got richer, um, so America has got richer and is well ahead of the other countries, and yet it's slipped from being one of the leaders in terms of life expectancy to one of the laggards, uh, if you look at rich countries. There's virtually no correlation between GDP and uh, longevity uh, in the developed world. There is, if you look at the, the, uh, the, the less developed world. So sociologists are really, you know, before Stiglitz and Fatusi, they were broadening the range to say, look, non-economic inequalities can also be important. And again, we've already talked about caste, because that fits very much into Weber's um, uh, concept of uh, status. So class, status and power. Class is, in Weber's concept is based on market situations, so it's much closer, although not identical to the, uh, the economists. Status has been neglected, but it's fundamental to issues of uh, caste, um, and indeed of uh, ethnic hierarchies. And the, the, the the key point about Weber, I think, is that he was concerned with derogation and deference. So it's how people treat each other. So, in a sense, issues of prejudice and discrimination are to do with the, the status relations. And status may be more... and it, it, The way people are treated by their notional superiors um, has been shown to be very important, for example, for mental health. And it's interesting looking at some of the papers that were circulated, which are trying to understand why inequality is, uh, is bad for health and so on. They focus very much on the individuals who are at the bottom and how they feel bad, their feelings of relative deprivation. I would say, well, if you take a serious Weberian approach, you would be looking at how they are treated. So rather than focusing on the poor and how they feel, you should be focusing on the rich and how they treat the poor. So it's issues of discrimination and derogation which are fundamental, uh, more fundamental, I suspect, than simple you know, economic inequalities, if we're interested uh, in, in, in issues about um, uh, well-being, mental health and um, uh, social cohesion. It's the treatment, not the fact of being poor, I suspect. It's a hypothesis. But it's one that gets lost in the economic approach, and the, and the analyses that follow the economic approach tend to, to ignore um, these issues of discrimination and ill-treatment uh, by superior groups. Um, OECD, following the Stiglitz report, produced a set of better life indicators. None of their indicators covers discrimination and prejudice. It's just left out. So that's, that's my first point. We want that a sociologist or some sociologists like myself will look beyond the, you know, the social inequalities and particularly will be concerned about the um, issues of political power which have been mentioned, but these um, concerns with, with derogation and, and, and ill treatment. Um, so moving on, because I suspect I'm talking much too long, as I always do when I talk from notes. Uh, units of analysis. Uh, which is covered in Tom Weisskopf's point, economic approach is essentially individualistic. You can aggregate up to look at you know, inequality process, property of a, of a, of a collectivity, or, um, um, 
but essentially it's it's based on individual you know, it, it's looking at um, how individuals income you know, what share it is of the uh, total income um, and, and so on so essentially economics is individualistic the, the, the models even though there's aggregating up um, the sociological approach again has been already mentioned, takes a much more group-based approach. And I want to argue that it depends on what you want to explain, but very often it's the, the group-based inequalities that are much more powerful drivers of social conflict than of the, um, the, the individual differences. We sort of assume that, that um, in, you know, individual inequality, as measured by economists, um, has these you know, harmful effects on social cohesion. My, again, my hypothesis, um, based partly on, on looking at, at um, uh, countries where I've, which I've done research, such as Bosnia and Northern Ireland, um, it's not the individual inequalities that matters. Um, both Bosnia and Northern Ireland probably were fairly equal countries in terms of you know, standard economic measures like Gini coefficient. What was important about those countries is that certain groups, um, Catholics in Northern Ireland, as a group, shared a common situation of disadvantage relative to the superordinate group of, of Protestants, or again the Bosniaks um, in, in uh, Bosnia uh, versus the, the uh, Bosnian Serbs. So there were, it was issues of group inequality and the sense of injustice and, and group processes um, based on the group differences, which were the drivers of the conflict. It wasn't the individual inequality. So there's, not, there's no necessary link between the, uh, right, the level of individual inequality and the, the, the risk of social disorder and social conflict. Group-based inequalities tend to be much more powerful. And a sociological approach would also emphasize that it's not just you know, that some individuals have more money than others, and C. Wright Norris in his classic The Power Elite emphasised social connections between the different elites. The fact that, and of course this goes back to Marx, this idea that elites, um, they're not just a set of atomised individuals, as in the, my stereotype economic approach, they talk to each other, they, they work together, and um, so uh, Mills talked about the the linkages between the business, the political, and the military uh, elites, and the fact that those came together to form a unified elite. And so sociology is essentially about the role of social relationships and the ways that those can, uh, th those can make a difference over and above, if you like, the simple um, individual um, inequalities. And you could argue, again, another hypothesis, but following a sociological approach, that, you know, Strong ties between members of an elite or members of a subordinate group can act as a kind of a multiplier effect. So that if you had a, you know, a highly unequal society, but the elites did not have a strong web of social connections, that might be less damaging for expropriation and so on than a, less equal, than a more equal society where there were tight bonds within that uh, elite. And for the former communist countries, with the tight bonds between the nomenclatura, would be an example. You know, they were not particularly, um, in fact, they, they were probably one of the, some of the most equal on standard measures uh, countries. 
And yet, because of the cohesion of the, uh, of the political elite, they were able to, to act in a whole you know, range of ways which uh, suppressed human rights. Um, I want to say very briefly something about measurement, which again is in uh, Tom Weiskopf's paper. I was at a meeting with the various economists at the British Academy a few weeks ago, and they're talking about how um, inequality um, uh, had risen sharply in the 1980s, and then there's been no increase in inequality in Britain um, uh, since the early 1990s. Inequality, they say, you know, without any caveats or qualifications, has, has, has remained pretty constant since um, um, the, the early 1990s. Which is true if you measure it by the, the Gini coefficient, or if you look at the, the ratio of the, um, the 90th percentile to the 10th percentile. It's true, the ratio hasn't changed. Absolute differences have grown enormously. And it may well be, and again this is in Tom Weisskopf's paper, that it's the absolute differences that actually matter. Not the relativity. It's not that you earn five times as much. You don't live in a gated. You don't form a gated community, but you've got earned five times as much. It's because you've got enough extra money, an absolute amount of money, that you can afford to do it. The ratio um, may not be important for these issues of um, uh, how elites uh, work together and how they treat the poor. So I, I think that. No, inequality is actually absolute inequality is continuing to increase. That means the social distance between elites in Britain um, and, and ordinary people are growing steadily wider, which is why the elites are neglecting the, the, the interests because they're, they're unaware of them, they don't meet the people. So you know, widening social distance may be an important driver of how elites behave. And that's not to do with the ratio, it's the, it could be to do with the absolute. So it's a hypothesis, but it's something that sociological approaches tend to focus, to look both at the relative in the way that economists do, so there's a lot of shared interest, but also saying absolute differences can also matter. And, um, and, and then I want to talk very briefly, my final, well, my penultimate point about the mechanisms Again, it's the, the uh, classic economic approach is individualistic, um, and some economists are taking account of, um, of, of group processes, but it, it's, it's still pretty rare. Um, um, whereas sociologists um, drawing, much, drawing on social psychological approaches like social identity theory emphasize the way in which these shared um, experience of um, disadvantage and, disc and discrimination and derogation can lead to group processes. Um, Runciman, back in the 1960s, Gary Runciman wrote a very influential book on relative de deprivation and social justice, where he emphasized what he called the role of fraternal relative deprivation. So the way that, and, and this was subsequently taken up more by social psychologists and sociologists, this idea that if you feel that your group as a whole shares a, a disadvantage, an unfair disadvantage, it doesn't matter whether you experience that disadvantage yourself, but your sense of identity, identification with your group members, who you see as a discriminated group, um, can be an important driver. And I always have great difficulty when I sort of talk to government about, say, extremism. They say, oh, no, unemployment is not related to extremism. Lots of the terrorists actually had jobs. And say, 
It's not the issue. It's not whether you, as an individual, uh, are unemployed that drives you towards extremism. It's the feeling of outrage that your group to which you belong is unfairly treated. So it's these issues of this, the, this, if like, the social response to the inequalities, which are often the group inequalities, not the individual equalities. And these notions of, of sort of uh, the group basis of, of things like, like fraternal relative deprivation, it's my group that is discriminated against, those can be the most powerful uh, ingredients uh, for, for certain kinds of, of, of consequence, which may not be the, econ the, the consequences that economists are looking at. So in some sense, you know, the way you should approach I'm not saying economists are wrong and sociologists have all the answers, we certainly don't, and I've been raising hypotheses rather than evidence most of the time, but a lot of it does depend on what is the explanatory question, why I'm interested in inequality, is it, is it because we're interested in issues of social disorder and protest and, and conflict, which I suspect is not on the uh, economists' uh, radar nearly as much, although there are exceptions. And then finally I want to say, but actually there's also an important um, way in which the economists are far superior to the sociologists, um, and that is they actually have produced these measures. So I can go and, and you know, look up um, the, the Gini coefficient for you know, 100 different countries. So, and so in a sense, the sociologists have only themselves to blame, because there's an available, what I call an availability bias in the data. So it's easy if you want to do large scale, as I do, quantitative analysis of corruption um, and its incidence, I can go and plug in the Gini coefficient um, because it's there and it's been measured. It, it may not be the right measure, but it's available and I don't have to do any work. And I can, you know, read some of the papers, you can get the Freedom House measure. It's not an academic one, it's a political lobbyist measure, but it's there and we can say it's a proxy. Sociologists have been very bad at actually producing the data, measuring the things I've been talking about, which is why, in a sense, we go on using the Gini coefficient to attempt to predict incidents of corruption or, or um, uh, 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 other issues of, of trust and so on, um, even though we know it probably isn't the right measure. But you know, an available measure beats all my sort of uh, abstract arguments in favour of measures of, of social distance and, um, and derogation. Until we get those measures, the economists will be winning the practical argument, if not the intellectual argument. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <coughs> so we've got four rich uh, presentations. There are. See, Elka, Elka already wants to comment. No, 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 no. I just, it just, it just a reminder for the non-economists in the room with the Gini coefficient, please. I don't know if others, if, if others blanked there, but I, I, um, yeah, just, just a quick footnote on Gini coefficient. Right. Um, I'm not going to try and explain a Gini coefficient, um, um, but it's, it's, a, it's the most commonly used measure um, in economics, but there's a whole set of measures which all tell more or less the same story. And so I also mentioned the measure, um, the ratio of, say, the top, top, uh, the the, the, the top 10% to the bottom 10%. And so it, it, it's a, a more technical version of that kind of measure. So in Britain, if you're in the top 10%, you're probably earning actually quite a modest sum of money, say 
80,000 a year. And from the bottom 10%, you're probably on 10,000 a year. Ratio of the, you know, the, the 80 to the 10 is 8. So it's a measure like that. It just it, 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 it's a ratio. Can I, can I yeah, answer that? <laughs> yeah, so the, as, uh, so the formula is complicated, but the idea is that you do a pairwise comparison of income. Supposing you're measuring it vis-a-vis -vis income. So there are 100 people in the economy. So you compare every pair, individual one and two, one and three, one and so on, right? So that's how it's arrived at. And basically the point to remember that is it takes a value between zero and one. Uh, zero is uh, when it's in a completely equal society, Gini coefficient would be zero. Yeah. And in a completely unequal society, which meant which means one person has all the resources, and ninety nine percent have uh, ninety nine people have none, then it'll take the value of one. So in real world, obviously it's neither zero nor one; it lies somewhere in between. But the closer it is to one, the more unequal is society. The closer it is to zero, the more equal is society. That's. that's that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it tries to measure across the whole distribution as, a, as distinct from these ratios. Like the ratio yeah, so it, it'll take into account everybody's incomes. That is the advantage of gene. I mean, that's one of the reasons that it's so enduringly yes. persistent yeah. is because it actually, in, in its calculations, every single person's income is being taken into account in order to calculate the gene. Is that also a disadvantage? It is. <laughs> yeah, because it's based on the Lorentz curve. Well, those can those can cross, and so you can have different distributions getting the same answer. Sure. Okay. So yes. If the Gini coefficient changes, for instance, you don't immediately know why. Yeah, know exactly. Which part of the chain? Yeah. In, in, as or two very different distributions yes. can have the same Gini as well. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. So there are a lot. It's a big advantage measurement. A lot is disadvantages. These various things you don't know who's whose uh, income has changed, if it changes, and it doesn't focus on the rich, which is one reason why you know, there's a, a move to embrace these other ratios, the ratio of the income of the top 10% to the bottom 40%, or the top 10% to the bottom 10%, because that focuses much more on the rich, which the Gini coefficient does. And it's measured on a household basis. So although the theoretical basis of neoclassical economics is the individual rational economic man, when they actually measure this, it's measured not on an individual basis, but on a household basis. What, the genie? Yes. No, not necessarily. Because the data is always household income. No, so in India, for example, we don't have in good income data. So we have consumption expenditure data. And so uh, you, but so wages, you, for example, no, that's household. Yeah. But you can do wages. You oh, can wages, do a genie yes. wages. Wages, yeah. wages, yes. So you but could, you household, could do an individual. Household income, household expenditure is what the basis of the Gini coefficient is. Not individual income or individual. Except now, for example, in India, you have the Indian Human Development Survey data. Mm -hmm. They, they have individual incomes. That's good. So they, people have calculated genies on individuals. That's correct. So if, if the data is there, you can do it on individuals. And what's more, for the first time, they're looking at assets as owned between men and women and separately. I just wanted to uh, respond to you. You know, this whole as a idea of measures of progress, which yeah. has been going on forever, and the attempt to somehow find alternatives. You know all about human development support. You all know about stiglitz. Mm. You know about what uh, uh, they tried, Amartya Sen and others group that tried to go out it. It doesn't work because I've also been struggling against the GDP and how it's measured. Mm. 
and I read all the stuff about how it doesn't measure what we wanted to measure and how it distorts. But that hasn't uh, taken off because the GDP has become such a conventional measure. Every time I go to the top and say, why not? They say, but listen, that's there. Mm -hmm. Like with Indian statisticians, people like Ashwini and I have been struggling for decades. But what I wanted to say was that we as feminists, feminist economists, are perhaps the first to really try to reorganize the indices. In fact, Diane and I have co-edited a book which actually has a title called Interrogating, Harvesting Feminist Knowledge, Interrogating Progress. And we really looked at measures of progress. When you disaggregate, disaggregate according to gender, mm. you get a much more interesting, rich territory from which you can look at what is progress. Mm. And so what I find often in discussions is that this whole area of knowledge that has been generated by feminists, especially feminist economists, doesn't actually enter the mainstream discourse. And one more point on what feminists have done, which I'm again... Uh, yeah, you talked about the fact that uh, theory hasn't taken over, taken up these issues. Uh, no, group, group uh, work hasn't entered in, among feminist economists in India who are working with the working class, I mean the working class doesn't fit in India, I mean the workers. Yeah. There's, no, there's a lot of intersection between those who are organizing women workers into some form of union and picking up from them ideas of what should be economic policy, what should be measured. And many of us have written about that, BPW and others. So I just want to bring to the table the fact that there's a whole rich field of researched knowledge, which is between activism and theory, which has not actually come on the table even here. But we should really, I mean, when I say should, it's a bad word, but it's just that it has to be put on board. And I want to put on board the fact that indices have been a preoccupation amongst all of us. Individual, group, intra-household inequality, how to measure that. And there's a rich area there for us to refer to when we do these discussions. Um, just trying to connect uh, the excellent papers today with, with some of the discussion yesterday. I think one abiding theme that seems to be emerging is, is, is the distinction between two different senses in which each presentation is talked of equality. Um, on the one hand, um, thinking about what might be or left individual uh, class concerns, um, and, and on, these, on the other, on the second hand, the, the status-based uh, group dimensions of inequality. I was, I was thinking that uh, they seemed to me, as a lawyer, and I'll speak in my presentation later about how the law uses completely different tools to, to address the two. As in, uh, they're not seen as similar. I'm wondering if if that distinction is as clear in the other disciplines or not. Because, so, thinking back yesterday's discussion between uh, Roger and Martin, you seem to be primarily talking about uh, individual welfare uh, and, and priority there, whereas you brought in some of the group concerns. So I was wondering if, if some of those debates were not real disagreements, but talking about the different types of inequalities and maybe we we actually do need different conceptual tools to, to engage with both of them. 
so it, it, you, you said that the economists and sociologists are dealing with it. Maybe uh, they are both just different. One, if I might just add to that point, one way which is sometimes talked about is, is horizontal inequality and vertical inequalities. Vertical inequalities is inequalities in income and wealth measured by things like Gini coefficients or ratios of top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And there's this horizontal inequality, which is these group uh, inequalities, these status group inequalities. Mm -hmm. Something like Francis Stewart in Oxford has done quite a lot of research, I think, on this. Uh, these issues of horizontal and vertical inequality, and particularly in relation to conflict, and I think concurs with the point you made about, about uh, conflict and uh, what she would call horizontal inequalities. Mm. But I wouldn't want to call them horizontal. I don't like that they <laughs> Because, in, in a sense, and you know, you know, going back to Weber's class status and power, these are all different vertical hierarchical distinction because you know, status or, or caste is a classic example mm -hmm. where you have the um, the the, uh, um, um, the forward castes and the, the OVCs and then the, the ballot there's a very clear sense of hierarchy mm -hmm. and and of, of, of treatment and the similar in, in, in um, with, with the uh, political uh, party dimension. So these, these these are vertical, they're just alternative. I think they call it horizontal because it's not something I've mm. used a lot in my work because because of the point that Ashwini was making about the creamy layer. In other words, mm. these are horizontal because they cut across the hierarchies of income. There are well better off people among Dalits and mm. worse off people or better off people among African Americans and worse off Dan, people. I, I think I think I agree with the point this uh, because the point is that by calling it horizontal, it gives the impression mm -hmm. that the groups are somewhat comparable mm -hmm. and you're just looking at the rich and the poor within the groups. Mm -hmm. And that I, seems highly problematic. I, 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 and I think, was, was it your paper that, that uses the two terms? One of the papers yes, circulated. Yes, we did talk use about, it. And, and that exactly is the, something that's used by economists. Yeah, so I, don't, I get what you're saying, but I don't like the yeah. labels at all. <laughs> I, I, I also don't use the word but another thing that, that I think we were mentioning yesterday about horizontal versus vertical is the way it's the way it's pitched is that the vertical ones are inequalities of income and wealth, mm -hmm. um, but it seems that they're uh, that where gender equality and ethnic equality they're not inequalities of gender and ethnicity they're inequalities of income and wealth yes. by gender and ethnicity, and so it seems that a lot of debate is that we're either looking at income inequality or we're looking at gender or we're looking at mm -hmm. ethnic. Uh, but actually, there are kind of the good things in life, which are distributed unequally by various di dimensions yes. and criteria. But, but what seems helpful from that work, and I don't know too well, is whether it has a very convenient way of measuring whether income and wealth, actually, I think they actually do care about income and wealth in the horizontal context, uh, are distributed unevenly by yeah. how to, whether that cross-nationally predict conflict. Sorry, I, I don't think it is just a matter that um, if you're looking at sort of ethnic, racial, or, or gender inequalities, we're just looking at the income differences between the groups. And the sociological approach would look um, much more broadly at life chances. Again, that's going back to Max Weber. Um, and so, you know, the concern might be that some groups, you know, they might have the same income, but their life expectancy might be different, uh, 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 might be unequal. Um, so I don't want to privilege the economic differences between groups. And it may be the insecurity. It, it's not the fact that my current income 
is higher or lower than that of some other group. But the security, my security or my risks of unemployment um, might be greater. So the sociological approach says there is a lot more going on than just income differences. And, and so when we look at class differences, we construct classes on the basis that, yeah, the, the, the higher level classes are indeed have higher income, but they also have higher security of tenure. They've got greater access to, to a range of, of non-economic uh, benefits. Um, so that it, it's a much broader conception and, <coughs> of, the, of, of uh, life chances, not just income. And that fits in exactly with the Stiglitz approach to saying there are, you know, if we're looking at so, so it's, yes, it's identical as measures of social progress, we want to take account of a whole range of issues of quality of life. And income is only a poor correlate with quality of life. So that would be my bottom line. Yeah, I, want to, um, sorry. I want to challenge two of those uh, propositions. Firstly, you know, when you talk of group, I just want to give illustrations from India, yeah. for example. If one, we, they are looking for reservation for women in the parliament. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the people who are protesting are the men in the parties which are representing the lower caste or the OBCs and the scheduled caste. And why are they, because the, they believe that it will only be upper class women who will come into the, but in fact the Panchayatana election shows that it is scheduled caste and others who are actually dominating the, the place of politics yeah. in the Panchayatana. So all the time there is this gender dynamics. All right, you say that when a group is better off, mm. uh, if whatever it is, they feel better in amongst caste. But when, um, uh, now according to the data we do, and Ashwini knows about this, on why it is considered that women's participation is lower, it's going down. The argument is that when the household income goes up, the women withdraw from work. Mm. Now that's actually a false reason. I mean, the women may not want to withdraw from work, yeah. but it may be the gender hierarchy yeah. within the household. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. within um, every kind of generalization we make about group, unless we bring the gender dimension, which is often a neglect, because there's a power issue there, which yeah. has to be constantly lifted. Uh, so I just wanted to say that we... we but I completely agree. I think that's completely in line with the approach I want to, yeah. to take. Um, that we should look at these issues of power and, and yeah, power within the household. Yeah. And, and power within the work. household is such right. an extraordinarily neglected um, issue, especially when it comes to understanding dynamics of group dynamics. Yeah. I mean, SCST women are perhaps the most uh, violated by the men itself, mm -hmm. and you must be knowing that in Tamil Nadu, it's the Dalit girls who are actually. Uh, yeah subjected to extraordinary brutal violence mm -hmm. by Dalits themselves, not only by yeah. no, no, Thank you. Um, I wanted to, I was, I wanted to, this is slightly off the track of where we're going, but I think it relates, um, which is to go back to Alfie's presentation at the beginning. Um, one of the things that you said that was really interesting to me was the kind of the lack of research on um, the relationship between uh, sort of class, caste position and environmental deprivation, if you want to call it that. And one of the things that struck me is that in the U.S. there's a great deal of research about environmental racism, for example. 
And the question is not why didn't you look at that, but why would you choose not to look at that to the extent, are there parameters where you think this is not a comparable circumstance? This is not something that I would look at as being uh, justifiably comparable to the area that I'm looking at. And it's really a question about the broader methodological stakes of what most of us are doing is how far afield do you go for looking for comparable cases? Who do you compare your group to in ways that feel productive um, but that don't feel either historically or empirically incorrect? Or do we just sort of do that by instinct and often turn to a nation state as the boundary for our research? So it's just a broader question about methodological decisions. But it's a really good point, and that's the so the all the literature, it's not actually that big a literature on environment and inequality. Not all of it, but nearly all of it is from the states on this issue, and and that's where a lot of the kind of framework comes from. So, so I would think that would be. Yeah, I find it a very useful place, and I take a lot of work from that and kind of try and take that forward. Um, but and I was so I was, but I was really surprised by. So I've got yeah. I think that's a really useful thing to take forward. But obviously, there's some clear differences between caste and race, and part of those are. Especially if you go to places like North India, there isn't a visible difference. And so there's an interesting thing of, of the where caste can change. If you're on Delhi Metro, you don't you can't tell, you can't categorise the person next to you according to their caste. So there's clear differences as well. Um, the thing that so I always think that the, the thing that's interesting about the dominance of the literature coming from the States is not how much there is there, but just how little there is everywhere else. So I was I mean I when I the 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 main search engine you use in my field is called Web of Science, and it's, it's the main. And it's if you put cast and environment in, you get several hundred thousand hits. If you take out the word insect, then you lose them all because cast is the only way that cast and environment is looked at is in terms of cast between different termite groups. You know, so it's interesting. Oh, it's yeah. Very, yeah, so we talk about different casts within those. So I was just amazed by how. How it hadn't been looked at for. So yeah, I haven't got much to add. I agree with. But do, do you think it would be legitimate to take the example of environmental racism in the U.S., the resettlement of communities, or the kind of deprivation around industrial zones, as being comparable to what you're talking about in an Indian context, or do you think that that's kind of a, a sort of a bridge too far to make the comparison? So I don't see why it's a bridge too far. So a lot of there's been a lot of interesting. There's always been a big debate with the environment inequality issue about kind of the chicken or egg one. So was the was the environment bad and then poor low status people went there, or were there poor local status people and then we put our big dirty polluting miners? And all those so from the states you see an increasing evidence that actually you've got a low status community and that's where you put your motorway, that's where you put your smelting plant, that's where and those kind of things are directly, you know, that's as I mean I'm very aware I'm talking outside my narrow, but to me that seems a, an issue of social status rather than something which is different between caste and race. So I wouldn't have a problem linking that. Can I just... Can I? No. No, no, no. Well, I just wanted to intervene in this method, methodology exchange uh, from my discipline's point Oh, then can I just insert a footnote to what yeah. uh, Falfi, because it was just directly... So I don't know at all whether this is relevant, but there's, a, there's work on tribes and uh, environmental issues. So, for example, tribals uh, live in environmentally rich... Uh, I mean, so natural resource-rich environments. So, a lot of debate about extraction, dams, resettlement, etc. Not so much about caste, but about tribes. So there's, there's work on that. I don't know if that fits in, but... 
Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of work. I, so I think it's, if you look at the tribal issue, there's a lot of issues about how tribes are, how tribals aren't, aren't compensated for action, and there's some really interesting work going on now about how um, how tribals are no longer being the kind of romantic image we have, and they're being very once they've got the rights to it, there's a lot of sale off of natural resources and they're getting the money. Um, so. Yeah, so, so, yeah. I mean, so, I don't know if that literature fits into this discussion. No. I, I don't know, I'm just... But can I add to the methodology? Sorry, methodology, methodology yeah. Um, it's, so, in, in comparative law, it's, it's a huge question. In the U.S., to introduce an inequality dimension to our scholarship, the U.S. is just so extremely dominant in, in producing intellectual discourses. It's so extremely insular and inward-looking in... In, in, in not at least, at least in my discipline, you know, well, American law is only interested in American law, but not hesitant to export those frames around the world at all, and it has an extremely distortionary impact on you know the American legal system is a pathological legal system, <laughs> and, but but that that performs this modeling function around the world with with very serious and damaging consequences. So so at least in in comparative law. People become a lot more cautious about. I, I look at the U.S., but mainly to say how not to do things. Uh, and, and so, compare, comparison can be insightful, but you have to be cautious about the power in in within scholarship as well. Well, it was in a way a response to the question about difference, because there are the questions of within a particular community there are differences within the community, but also internationally there are differences between specific national histories, the way that law is developed in the United States as opposed to the way law developed in the UK or India, the difference between statutory law and you know, common law, whatever, all those differences matter a great deal. And it seems like even within the context of thinking economic history or cultural history, the kind of ever-looming presence of both the nation-state and also the ever-looming presence of what you just said for everyone here probably, the overwing presence of a US-based scholarship as the kind of dominant model for the way that many people think, at least in this century. Um, that seems like an important aspect of the question about inequality. Does anybody, yeah, I'm just looking around to see anybody who hasn't spoken yet or played to. Right. A number of things I'd like to say, perhaps we on the table for later. Uh, one is this very interesting question about comparative method and about whether you compare the most similar cases but with one dimension difference or whether you go for the most difference, which I think is interesting. Mm. And your point about history and context, etc., which I might talk a little bit about maybe later. Um, secondly, Anthony said something very, very interesting, I thought. Well, he said a lot of interesting things, <laughs> but particularly the for us trying to think about interdisciplinarity. I think you said it depends on what you, the question you want to answer. And I wanted to add to that and your theoretical perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in your um, notion of economics as a singular discipline, which of course it isn't. I'm going to disrupt that yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. um, so it just said to me, are we searching for something interdisciplinary and can we ever do it? And do the questions we all ask matter? And thirdly, I wanted to say something about income, but I'm going to say that in my own presentation. Income is not a neutral um, marker. Income uh, is socially constructed and is related to gender and ethnicity and so forth. So the income that one can earn depends on, on social characteristics. And we don't go into the labor market as unmarked, neutral, rational economic man. We go in as embodied creatures. Boy, you want to talk about that a bit more later. Thank you. Um, yes. 
I, I, I just had a brief question of clarification uh, for Ashwini about the uh, the Indian Constitution. So, in in the UK, you know, we have this slightly weird situation where in employment, uh, affirmative action is okay if that involves just encouraging, say, women to apply for a job. Um, but it's but it, but positive discrimination is not okay if you then say in your selection criteria, uh, you will uh, have an advantage if you're a woman, or on a panel if you say, we'll appoint this person because she's a woman. That's strictly not allowed. Is, it, is that distinction made in India, or, 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 would, um, or, would, e or would affirmative action going to be described as, as unconstitutional? So, um in India, the quotas, uh, so affirmative action mainly takes a form of quotas, uh, that's reserved seats. And these, that's primarily caste-based, not for women. The quotas apply only to local government elections. So there's 33% seats in urban and rural local bodies that are reserved for women. So constituencies are, that, that rotate. So it's not a fixed constituency. So this year, it might, this election, it might be this constituency that has, a, that has to elect a woman. As a leader, another time it might. So those are women's quotas, but the caste quotas are um, so a group of jatis or caste that is in the group scheduled castes, a group of tribes that is in in a list called scheduled tribes, uh, have uh, uh, had quotas in central government uh, jobs and state government jobs. So government jobs, government sponsored education institutions and elected representation at all levels of elections. So together, these two groups have got 22.5% uh, seats reserved. And from 93 and 2006, respectively, the, uh, the job and education quotas were extended to a group uh, called, in a, in a, it's, a, it's a kind of omnibus category called Other Backward Classes or OBCs. I mean, I can go into the details of all of this, but I'm just giving you the factual thing. So 27% quotas now for other backward classes, which in education institutions were started in 2006 at the central government level. Uh, but at, at, the, at the state level, the picture is very complicated. There have been OBC quotas at different times, etc., etc. These are the broad quotas. There are, within this, there are, you know, most backward uh, nomadic tribes, etc. You know, there's, it's, it's complicated to say the least. But these quotas are constitutional. So the constitution says that measures can be taken to advance the cause of marginalized communities, including reservation of seats. So the word include, including reservation of seats is included in the constitution, but it's not for women. It's only for, uh, uh, which is only for the, these castes and communities, but OB, not OBC quotas. Can I ask a question? So that's the, <laughs> just a factual thing. Interestingly, when I'm looking at the chief ministers of our states in India, 40% of the chief ministers, that is like the prime minister of the individual states in India, are Dalits, SCS. Because of this, and the fact that block votes, you know, there's what is called the captive vote, that you have Dalits and they vote for Dalit, the Muslims, so it's very highly segregated. And it's a strange kind of phenomenon between political power and uh, social power. Can I ask a naive question that crosses affirmative action generally, which is just to say, how do you decide how much affirmative action you should have? So what? So we've got 22.5% was mentioned here. Sorry? No. So I just, so my question was, so 
you know, you were very clear affirmative action can be very positive, but how do you decide how much affirmative, you know, how big should the quota be? Okay, so, too much uh, so for, for the scheduled castes and tribes, no, it, it I was... I mean, normatively, I mean, how much should it be? So, no, that's what I'm just... Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, so the point is that for the two communities, it was supposed to be proportional to their share of the population. Mm-hmm. So the share is no longer 22.5, but it, it was at one time, and so that's stayed on. And the West Bengal is really... It, so in so this is national. Yes. So every state has very different. So for example, Punjab has a very high proportion of, but you know as I talk in the talk that I gave at your center, the point is that if you have a national quota, then you just keep it fixed rather than going. Because in India, you'll go. You know if you had if you varied it by every state, then it'll be it'll be very difficult to implement. So that's the idea at least. Whether it is or not, nobody knows because we haven't done it that way. So the quota is uniform for the entire country, despite the fact that the underlying population distribution is different for every state. The 27 for OBCs is a very peculiar thing because their share of the population, first of all, the census still doesn't count the OBCs. So you don't know the exact share in the population. So you only have estimates from sample surveys and they range from 40 to 41 to 44, depending on which sample survey you're talking about. But the number 27 is related to nothing really. The reason what it's related to is the is the view that quota should not exceed 50%. So if you have 22.5% for SCs and STs, then what is the number that will make it less than 50? It's 27. Now, having said that, certain states have quotas more than 50%, but that they have to get an exemption and they can implement a quota uh, greater than 50%. So it's complicated. That's the bottom line. <laughs> but but the, the idea is that it should be proportional to population. But if you if you examine the 33% for women, then it's obviously not proportional to population. So I'm going to ask Francesca now, which you haven't spoken before, and then I think we'll have to call the session to a halt. Yeah, I had a few points. So, so in, yeah, in the UK we don't have quotas we, for... We have had. We have had. Oh, we but have had quotas in law in Northern Ireland for access to the police. 50% quota for Catholics. It's not true that in British law you can't have quotas. What about the 11 plus? Years and years ago, it was a quota for boys because that's right. girls were cleverer than boys at 11. More job, passing in large numbers, that's so they had to. It's also true. Yeah. It's also not true. Okay, it's very sexy um, to have a quota. They have women only shortlists yeah. where parties to select their candidate to be in a, be in a particular area say we're only going to have five candidates and they're all going to be women, so therefore the candidate would definitely be a woman. Um, and I think, yeah, there's something around we um, the idea of the critical mass that you need in terms of representation, and, and sometimes the critical mass is often talked about as around a third, as to when the, the, sh- the shift in the shift in power and the, the ability of, of that group in those dynamics to influence um, is around there. That's the 33% comes from that, yeah. Mm. Um, but I was also thinking about in, in British politics, there's, there's still very much... Um, power imbalances between different classes, as as there might be in, in Indian politics, but we don't have the same way of identifying particular ca- classes as we do with the the caste system. Um, so it wouldn't be it would be a very interesting way to think about how can we challenge those different types of class inequality or who is represented in politics in a in a society mm-hmm. where you don't have such like personal identity with with a class or how you would label people basically as to say you're we need more of these people or more less of these people. So I think we've had a rich discussion which we're gonna to have to uh, to uh, halt. I think we've had a very 
interesting discussion about these different kind of people have been calling like status, status uh, groups and their inequalities and action to address that in terms of affirmative action. We also have the important point that, that I can make, which I don't think we should lose sight of, which is the tr transformation uh, um, that these identities may not be set in stone. And indeed, one of the things that we, they are often fluid and shifting in various ways and get reworked uh, over history and according to various pressures. And it, so when we're talking about addressing inequality, we also have to think about that, about how uh, social norms and social identities and, uh, are, are a bit more fluid than is often given credit for and what can you do uh, to bring about changes there. And obviously there may be a bit of trade-off between the affirmative action which takes these um, differences as uh, inequalities as they are now and tries to address them by saying, okay, this group can um, get uh, reserved seats in educational politics or jobs and the idea that you, for the longer run you need a more transformative strategy that will help people transcend these kinds of inequalities. And I think you see in the UK at the moment with the, the rise of xenophobia, the rise of anti-immigrant feeling, you see the negative side of this quote fraternal relative deprivation where low income uh, white people, men in particular, are defining themselves in opposition to uh, uh, groups who are different in various uh, ways uh, on, on, on racist and xenophobic lines. And so how you deal with that issue, I think, is a, a big problem, both here and in many, many other parts of Europe, as well as long-standing issue in the, in the United States. So I think we've earned our coffee. <laughs> Uh, thanks everybody uh, for very interesting presentations. Sorry,